Great September. It's Jackson Lucas. That means September secondaries. So I, uh, I'm Chris Popup, I'm founding partner of Jackson Lucas. I'm based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and we have the other co-host, or the other host, and my podcast host is Lisa Flicker. Lisa's in Florida today. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Chris. Hello, everyone. So weird. It's a beautiful day do this podcast and no one can see us and now we're going to do the webinar and people can actually see us it's it's very strange you got to actually like make sure i'm in, in frame uh so yeah so thank you for joining us for the uh real estate secondaries webinar uh we have some amazing guests today from from big shops so let's just start with the introductions here um i'll start uh just go around the room here let's start with sam sam can you tell us about yourself where you're located your firm yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. Um, hey, everyone. I'm Sam Merkel. Um, I lead our real estate partnerships investing business in the U.S. for Partners Group, uh, focusing on secondaries, co-investments, and primary commitments to fund. Uh, prior to Partners Group, I had stints at Starwood Capital and the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Um, for those of you uh, who are maybe less familiar with Partners Group, uh, we're a global private equity firm with $142 billion of assets under management. And uh, since about 1996, we've invested over $200 billion in private equity, credit, real estate, and infrastructure. Um, on the real estate side, we manage approximately $17 billion of uh, assets, and that's split roughly you know, 55% between our direct business and 45% in partnerships. Um, so you know, partnerships being more the passive LP stakes, uh, and then our direct business being more control-oriented joint ventures with operating partners. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's that's you know a little bit about me and 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 how we're we're set up at uh, PG. You're in you're in Denver, right? That's right. Yeah, um, based here in Denver. Uh, PG is headquartered in Switzerland, but uh, we chose to set our North America headquarters out here, uh, and so I'm I'm dialed in from our uh, our Denver headquarters today. Is that because of, like they wanted the Rockies and the Alps? They need the yeah. range. You know, it, it, it was a little bit of that. And I think, um, you know, for us choosing this location was purposeful and the way that we built our campus was very purposeful. Um, you can see behind me, there's, uh, it, it sort of looks like I'm sitting inside of a factory. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty neat um, purpose-built campus that we opened in 2019. Uh, it looks like a factory. It looks like you're walking around in sort of an old industrial setting, which is pretty neat. But I think it speaks volumes about the way that we, approach investing as, you know, entrepreneurs um, that are really focused on driving value for our clients. Um, you know, no, no offense to the folks in New York, but, you know, we just didn't really see ourselves as being a typical white shoe firm in New York City. And, you know, we chose our location to reflect that. Gotcha. Well, here's a guy that's based in Connecticut. So close, closer to New York City, Mr. Jeff Cho. Jeff, could you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, Chris and Lisa, um, thank you for uh, hosting this timely webinar, because um, as you can imagine, it's certainly an exciting time to be in the real estate secondaries market. So really appreciate this uh, opportunity to you know put some uh, press out there in terms of what it is that we're doing. And actually, obviously, very excited uh, to be uh, having this discussion with Sam, Alex, and David. So in terms of personal background, yeah, I am managing director at Portfolio Advisors. Um, I lead a real estate secondaries business. Um, I've been in the real estate market for over 20 years at this point. Uh, first decade with 
um, fund sponsors like the Carlisle Group working on their Carlisle Realty Fund 3 and 4 and having spent some um, time at a multi-strategy hedge fund on the real estate credit side. And I've been in the real estate secondary market since 2012. Uh, in terms of portfolio advisors, uh, we just announced a merger back in June, uh, creating a $75 billion asset multi-strategy asset management along with FS Investments. Now we're able to serve really all the way from you know the smallest individual investors all the way to largest uh, institutional investors. And maybe just one thing to point out for this conversation, uh, we do, I would say we're in the secondary market, we're structure agnostic. So we look at both LP st strategy and the GP strategy within the real estate secondary market. And we'll certainly um, have some conversations around that. Uh, but I have a feeling that I might be waving the LP secondary flag a little bit here in this webinar. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, we have David Lee. David is in New York City. He, he works over at BGO. Uh, formerly known as Bentall Green Oak. David, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Chris. And, and thank you for having me on this esteemed panel. Uh, David Lay, I'm a managing director at BGO. Uh, and uh, specifically, I'm in the strategic capital partners team at BGO. BGO is a global real estate investment manager with over 80 billion in assets under management. And strategic capital partners or SCP is the multi-manager business doing primary fund investments, co-investments, and last but not least, secondaries. I co-founded the secondary business here now almost a decade ago, and I am the portfolio manager for our secondary funds. Thank you, David. And last but definitely not least, Alex Abrams. Alex is with Stepstone Group, and he's based in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. Yes. Uh, can you please introduce yourself, Alex? <laughs> Thanks, Chris and Lisa. Um, Excited to be here. Uh, Alex Abrams, partner at Stepstone Real Estate. Uh, Stepstone is a private markets advisor and investor covering private equity, real estate infrastructure, and private debt. Uh, I'm a partner in the real estate business. I've uh, been with the firm for, for eight years. Prior to that, part of the uh, GCM Grovener CFIG business uh, for a number of years and started my career is a practicing attorney in real estate investment management and private funds. Uh, so been in doing this in around this space for a number of years and uh, excited to, to be joining and chatting about secondaries. And yeah, we noticed before the webinar that you have your stepstone blanket there. So I love it. And uh, yeah, just Everyone who wants to know more about them personally, we have our Jackson Lucas Impact Real Estate Podcast. And so we've had September Secondaries Month and uh, David's uh, podcast just came out yesterday. So please check that out and you can get to know more about their personal stories and journeys through real estate. So got through the intros. Great job. And uh, Lisa, you want to you start, start us off here? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, I think if it's okay, would love to start out just by having you give us a brief introduction on the secondaries market and maybe explain to the folks that are listening the difference between GP-led and LP-led secondaries. Um, I guess maybe I'll go back to the beginning and start with Sam again. Yeah, sure. Um, ha happy to happy to start. And, you know, um, any of you guys feel free to jump in uh, at any point to uh, cut me off or add anything in. Um, so, look, the um, 
the uh, secondary space has evolved quite a bit over time, right? And and I think what what was you know traditionally viewed as secondary investing really came out of the GFC, particularly for real estate investing. And you know for the longest time, most of secondary investing was focused on LP led transactions, and that's essentially providing liquidity for um, LPs and closed end funds um, who want to exit their investment sooner than you know the the investment horizon for that fund. And you know once you sign up for a commitment to a real estate fund, you're sort of in it for the long haul, right? It, it's not it, it's not something that's freely traded like a, you know a stock on the stock market. You know you're signing up for ten year plus type commitments, and so the only way that you can access liquidity for those positions is through a secondary transaction. Um, and you know the the market is still continuing to grow and evolve, but you know, the LP led space has started to become more mature. There are several large institutions that play in that space, um, covering you know both large positions as well as smaller positions. Um, but you know that that's really where the, uh, the the secondaries business got its start. But over time, an increasingly important part of the overall secondaries view was GP led transactions. And you know the difference here is that you know the the liquidity event is being initiated by the GP, right? Thus, the GP led uh, transaction. And so, um, you know, in in, in most contexts uh, of a GP led transaction, you'll have uh, a fund sponsor who owns a, a certain set of assets, you know, generally high quality properties um, that they think have uh, additional life left in them. And they would like to own them for longer to execute on the business plan and see them all the way through. But because of the finite closed end nature of most real estate funds, you don't always have the ability to continue to hold on to those assets for longer. And so a GP led transaction allows the, you know, the fund sponsor to continue to own and manage those assets in a newly set up uh, continuation vehicle. And at the same time, you're providing a liquidity option to the existing LPs who typically are either able to roll or sell their investment. Um, and over, over time, really in the last 10 years, we've seen an explosion in GP-led transactions. And that's becoming an increasingly important part of our business uh, in the secondary space covering you know, both GP and LP-LEDs. Thanks, Sam. Anyone want to jump in and, and talk to me? Feel, have a, you know, feel free to jump in and have a conversation about this. I mean, I think yeah, that no, was, that, go for it, go for it, Jeff. Oh, no, I just thought, you know, Sam did a great job of um, explaining where the market is. I think maybe just uh, one thing that I just wanted to add in terms of what that ultimate buyer pool, as Sam had alluded to some of the folks who are involved in, in terms of day to day, there's probably what 10 groups who uh, really make up that marketplace at this point in time. And really between that 10, maybe half really focuses purely on the GP led and the other half really looks at both LPs and the GP led market. So I think we have a pretty interesting mix of participants here. If we sort of, you know, fall within that uh, sort of uh, group. Yeah. And I just wanted to kind of note that um, the, what's interesting is that uh, that, you know, what Sam was talking about is specifically the real estate secondary space. Um, and, you know, as compared to the private equity secondary space, we're really just a fraction of the size. And um, I think one thing that we can talk about today is sort of will this uh, market volatility and uncertainty sort of be an inflection point for the real estate secondary space where, 
limited partners who are investing in these real estate funds start to look at their portfolios, much like private equity investors do with actually uh, getting comfortable trading them more freely on the secondary market because as a percentage of, of capital deployed, you know, real estate is still much smaller than private equity. Um, like Jeff said, there's, we, there aren't that there aren't as many groups in our space trading, so that's probably part of it. But it's sort of a chicken or an egg because you know you don't have the volume, you don't have the market participants. Uh, so some kind of something interesting to think about as uh, as this volatility unfolds. Yeah, you want to touch on that? What would that look like if it became more like the traditional private equity market? So early in my career, I did have the opportunity to work on some private equity secondaries, growth equity funds, um, energy and infrastructure funds, venture capital. And I would say that um, that part of the world is, as Alex said, is much more liquid and much more transparent. Funds tend to have more standardized reporting, share more information, making it easier for, for a buyer to you know, do their underwriting, get comfortable with the assets, uh, have a point of view. On, on the go forward and what the future return is. In contrast, real estate funds, not as transparent, very inconsistent in terms of reporting. So every time you look at a, a, a fund secondary, you have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. And the funds just tend to be much smaller, right, than your average buyout or growth equity fund with far fewer LPs, and therefore there will intrinsically be less flow. Uh, so you can't take the underwriting you do for one traditional secondary typically and apply that to the next deal. Um, you just don't see as much repeat names in the real estate secondary space with some exception. So I think you know that that is a bit of a, a difference between the real estate secondary market and the private equity secondary market. But as we hopefully get more market participants in this space, it can become more liquid and you know, that, that that will change a little bit. We'll get a little bit, at least a little bit closer to private equity secondaries. Are you seeing more? I mean, you say it's an inflection point. Are you seeing more participants in, in the space right now because of where they we are in the, in the cycle, interest rates and all that jazz? I think we've had, um, and, and I'll just start, 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 start the answer to your question here, uh, but others feel free to chime in. Over time, we've seen um, gradually net-net uh, some new entrants into the market. Uh, but um, over the, gee, now I've been doing this for about 13 years. Um, what's happened is some new entrants come in while some existing participants exit the market for one reason or another. So we gradually have had an expansion, but it's been, a, I would say it's been a very, very gradual process. And the reason why is because there are Pretty considerable barriers to entry. I alluded to some of them before, you know, in terms of the lack of liquidity, opaqueness of the funds. Um, if you don't have relationships with the managers, it's really hard to get into the space. So we've heard a, a, of a lot of groups interested in, in getting into real estate secondaries as, a, as buyers, but once they do their homework, um, they realize it's a lot harder than, you know, just doing more private equity secondaries. Um, you know, as an example of, of the other things they could prioritize with their time. Yeah, I think, um, you know, what's interesting against between private equity and real estate is 
in real estate, you know, one of the big focuses has been, or, or kind of prior to the market volatility, I think on the GP-led side, were these recaps, which were really more core plus and core focused, right? So you have differentiated return targets for real estate investors between, you know, core and core plus value and opportunistic. And then private equity and growth, growth, uh, growth equity, you're talking about much higher octane focused returns, which allow for kind of secondaries where uh, you can buy in at discounts and still achieve your returns versus, you know, real estate where even if you commit at a, at an early, uh, on a primary basis, you're only targeting kind of mid-teens uh, returns and, you know, one seven, one eight, you know, at the high end of, of, of reasonable targets for value-add value add funds. So it's just a different, it's a different ballgame. And I think that that, um, what I think, I, I think we started to see a lot of growth in the space around these core plus recap cap opportunities. Um, you know, real estate's a long-term asset class. So it does lend itself to kind of more to the GP-led market than the LP secondary market where people don't want to sell or aren't really willing to sell to provide groups like us, LP secondaries to provide groups like us, our return on a go-forward basis. They're just looking at it as real estate. They want to sell it um, and, and, and not looking to take a significant discount. But the GP-led side and sort of the manager community really did like the idea of holding on to assets longer term. Is there long-term assets or cash flowing? Um, but I think the challenge now is we're, we've, as we're going through this peer-to-market volatility, um, I, I imagine all of us on this call are looking for higher returns. We're not as focused on just recapping uh, portfolios uh, that are that are fully stabilized. And I don't know of anything that's really fully stabilized right now, uh, given you know interest rate volatility. So. Um, we will see how this kind of plays out. I think over the next year, it's going to be an interesting year uh, in terms of growth of, of GP-led deals and growth of that market. And and on the LP side, um, you know, kind of see see how the market develops. Yeah. Let's talk about... You bring up a good point on uh, real estate oftentimes uh, lending itself towards more core, core plus type return profiles for some of these GP led recaps. And, you know, just expanding on David's point where we have seen new entrants in the secondary space has really been on the public investor side, as well as with some sovereigns. And I yeah. think, um, and I think with kind of the evolution of the GP led recapitalizations, especially for some really high quality assets that managers would like to continue to hold on to long-term, that sort of, um, marrying of capital sources makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that will continue to become more and more important over time. Right. So you, you feel turn. Sorry, Chris, go ahead. Now you go. I'm just going to ask another question. Go ahead. Yeah, no, just to finish that thought process. And in terms of where Alex's initial question is like, where are we going with this? I mean, if you really think about the GP led market, but taking a step back and say private equity, I don't know, $10 trillion industry, the commercial real estate market as a whole is a $20 trillion market, right? And what GP-LED is doing is actually they are, GP-LED is bringing in some of the capital that was outside of the private equity real estate market from operators who had joint venture partners. And they're bringing those assets and that capital into the private equity real estate market through a GP-LED market. So in really five, 10 years, maybe not through this volatility, but long-term, I really do think GP-led market ultimately grows the pie of the private equity real estate market. 
And right now we're talking about a trillion dollar private equity real estate marketplace and secondary deal volume makes up about 1% of that. So we're talking $10 billion, uh, right? Uh, a transaction volume. But if that pie grows from a trillion to 5 trillion, we're talking about 50 billion. So that's where I feel like we could start competing against the private equity is through the usage of really the GP led secondary market, right? So that's, I think, the really long term exciting opportunity that we see in front of us. Yeah, agreed. Could the, that, could the GP led uh, secondaries market be the most attractive market in real estate right now? We think so. Certainly, that's been our, our focus. Um, for the past for the past year, uh, we would would certainly say that GP led secondaries are currently more attractive than traditional secondaries. Um, but as to compared to the the broader um, a real estate asset class, you'll have to take my words with a grain of salt because that is my focus area. Um, but, a little bit of bias on this panel, but yeah, but yeah, it's it's a it's a period of market dislocation where um, a lot of sponsors either need to or have to hold their assets longer and may need additional equity um, for those assets or to you know, uh, execute on their business plans in other ways. And, and therefore, there is a lot of demand for, for secondary capital, right? Um, which puts us in a good position in terms of our ability to be selective um, and structure the, de the, the deals a way um, that potentially works best for us, right? Um, so just, you know, in terms of, of those overall market dynamics, we're very pleased to be in the place that we are um, today. Did some of these firms like see these headwinds? Like, because I, I just felt like recently, like, you know, you were part of Carlisle there, David, now you're at BGO, they kind of, and then I know uh, Landmark was, Fired by Aries, like did they kind of see these big firms like kind of see, all right, we need to tack on a secondary strategy here because of what's coming down the pipe, or is this coincidental? There has been a lot of M and A activity in in the real estate secondary market, um, and and those are two notable examples. Uh, but I I think a lot of that actually happened before the market turned last year, right? Uh, certainly, our um, integration into into BGO happened now over two years ago before. Um, you know, anybody had any idea that interest rates would go up uh, as quickly as they ultimately did. And so it was driven more by the long-term secular tailwinds benefiting secondaries, not necessarily what we've seen in the past year, but what we've seen in the past year definitely supports the investment thesis. And I would I would echo what David said about I mean I had actually I actually do think that GP led secondaries are probably the most interesting uh, opportunity in real estate right now. And the reason I, I say that is one we all kind of know that you know given interest rate volatility it's very difficult to go out and develop it's very difficult to go out and buy new deals um, and you know as as this whatever happens sort of unfolds, the first place that unfolds is with the existing owners of the assets. So recapitalizing owners in their their assets where sort of they have, yeah, you know, they know where all the skeletons are hidden. They know the relationship with the lender. They know the operations of the asset. That's the first step. Now, you can't always, everything isn't going to be recapped. Uh, some things get turned back to lenders. Sometimes it's just that there's, there's no... Uh, 
there's no real money left in the equity and, and there's nothing to do there. So yeah, it will play out and MPLs will trade and distressed debt will happen and there'll be other plays besides secondaries. But with where the banks are and sort of continuing to push out any resolution of their loans in sectors that the operating fundamentals are still strong, like industrial and multifamily, what we're seeing are these recap opportunities. Um, and the folks on this webinar are, are really good at maneuvering through these complex kind of recaps with, with these GPs. So I think it's an interesting, it, it is really an interesting place to play because it's where kind of transactions are happening right now until the banks really just say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna start taking back assets in mass and and then maybe it's a it's a you know just one of the many opportunities out there. But in transaction activity is so so slow outside of recap. So I'm not sure. I mean it's what I do all day. So I'm not sure what the market is, but I, I can't imagine much is going on uh kind of outside our space right now. Yeah and I'd yeah, love and I to hear in this kind of market where deal volume is down, how you're how you're valuing the assets when you when you go into the you know in the various asset classes like office for example, what how do you look at that when it's in a portfolio, in a fund? Yeah, uh, happy to speak to that a little bit. Um, so we're we're probably one of the few groups that happened to uh, underwrite and acquire an office asset this year uh, through a recap. Um, but you know, in this instance, I would say it was a bit more incidental. Uh, it was part of a broader recapitalization, and uh, you know, in, in this case, it was challenging, right? It's it's hard to it's hard to figure out what what an appropriate floor is for office assets, and you know, set aside the fact that the rent roll was relatively strong, the asset is cash flowing, the capital structure is fine. Um, it, it's really challenging to to look five, 10 years out into the future for an office asset today that, you know, if it if it's relatively commoditized in a in a, you know, mid-tier submarket, there's really, you know, it's it's really, really hard to figure out what is the long-term, you know, highest and best use for a property like that. And so while you can still underwrite cash flow, pegging that residual value is very challenging. And so, you know, in in the in the context of the office asset included in this transaction, we ultimately threaded the needle by structuring um, sort of a win-win earnout situation with the existing fund investors where, um, you know, the valuation was subject to ultimately how much cash flow was, um, you know, produced by the asset over the next, call it 12 months. And ultimately, if we ended up exiting the asset sooner, um, you know, the investors would participate in upside on that as well. Um, you know, but barring that, there really wasn't much else we could do to ascribe too much too much value for that that property because, you know, at the end of the day, it's um, like I said, it's it's just really hard to figure out what ends up happening with the with the commoditized office building in the future. Do you and That's Jeff so just did it? Do you guys want to talk about the deal that you guys did, you and Jeff? Sure. Yeah, Jeff, do you want to do you want to take it? Oh no! Well, I, my point was that that was exactly one of the highlights of the, the transaction that um, that uh, you know Sam just described is like how do you because I mean multifamily you could put a value on it because there's agencies providing you know uh, financing and I think we locked in a very attractive financing uh, at that point in time uh, where you know yields have obviously moved up ever since then but really that solving that office key was the key component of the whole transaction so 
you know, way Sam described it was, uh, I think, a win-win situation for everything. And that's why I think GP-led is, because in a, in any other, in, in any other transaction, I don't know if we're able to solve that, that eloquently, but because we have the GP who was motivated to get a transaction done and wanted to provide the liquidity, I think it was, it, it was a win-win for every, all the parties that were involved, right? So I think that's why, that's one, in my mind, that's one of the reasons why GP-led transaction can get done. And really, I mean, we all have advisory side and, you know, of, of all of our businesses or even primary investing side of our businesses. And, you know, we're, we're seeing what's in the marketplace and there's no one who really can structure an office transaction that way. So that's why I think, you know, right now with the limited transaction activity, making the statement that GP led is probably one of the more, like the most attractive place to be, I think is really these motivations behind all the participants. Jeff, well, jump in here. I think the transaction that that uh, Sam and Jeff were just describing was a continuation vehicle. Uh, but I just want to add that GP led doesn't just have to be a continuation vehicle at the end of the fund life. It could also be much earlier. And that's been our playbook is to to invest earlier um, and actually to to be a little bit more targeted uh, doing small to mid cap uh, size deals, or at least I would perhaps describe them as, as small or mid-cap, uh, maybe maybe comprising just a single asset or a sub-portfolio, a relatively concentrated sub-portfolio of assets um, within, within the fund rather than the whole fund. Uh, and this is an environment I think that lends itself well to that playbook because again, um, you know, sponsors are uh, having fundraising challenges, uh, assets need more work or there's more opportunity um, Whatever's going on at the asset level, you know, it, it will be different uh, from case to case. And, um, you know, it is a bit more granular. It is a little bit different from, uh, you know, the continuation fund space or uh, even traditional secondaries. But we've we found that to be a good place to focus our efforts. Gotcha. Awesome. Um, now, we talked a lot about GPs and Jeff, it's going to be your, your time to shine. What what tell us about the LP side, the LP led transactions? Yeah, um, I think you know Alex alluded to this you know moment in time through the, through the volatility. I mean, this is it feels a lot like you know period after the GFC when you know L, the real estate secondary market really came into sort of what it is today, right? Very institutionalized market. So, I mean, we are, we've been super excited um, about the opportunity. It's taken a little longer. Uh, I say GP-led has sort of led that. We're on the LP side, we're seeing ton of volume in the marketplace in terms of potential sellers, but the problem is a bid-ask spread right now. And sort of goes back to, you know, where are these, um, you know, funds or the underlying assets being marked? Because when we think about the upfront discount in an LP secondary transaction, in normalized market, we think about liquidity premium and risk premium. But in today's market, you have to add in the repricing, essentially, right? If something's being held at a four cap and you think it's worth a six cap, you have to adjust for the repricing. And that's where you have this huge bid-ask spread because of the fact that, you know, the fund sponsors are still holding some of these assets at a four cap and no one's really adjusted to today's marketplace. So... That's been the challenge um, in the LP secondaries market to getting deals done. There are deals that are actually getting done, but it's far you know fewer than what we had anticipated in terms of looking at the amount of LP secondaries that are in the marketplace. Now, 
just a, uh, so from so that's been I would say kind of the first nine months of the year. But if uh, I'd say last month or two, what's been very interesting and it's kind of started just taking note is the fact that we started to see kind of 2021, 2022 vintage funds in the marketplace. And generally those, you know, like recent vintage funds do not come to the secondary market. And last time we saw this much recent vintage funds in the secondary market was 2010, 2011, when people needed to get out of their unfunded liabilities. So they're essentially giving away their existing assets. Now, at this point, no one's giving away existing assets, but they're letting them go at a significant discount. So is there? So we do feel like there's liquidity pressure uh, within the investor base. So to Alex's point, is this the moment where sort of everything comes together from the GP and the LP side and sort of, sort of you know, does the real estate secondary market really take sort of the next step, right? Some are closer to the private equity secondary market in terms of volume and activity and even participants. Yeah, I think um, I think one thing that's kind of interesting in between kind of GP LEDs and LP LEDs is, is tenders. Um, and I'm kind of just speaking about that today with someone this morning. Is this the time for kind of tender processes to kind of uh, get more active, right? Because as Jeff was saying, when you start seeing these recent vintage funds, that means people have uh, LPs have uh, liquidity needs, right? They're just trading out of whole positions to get liquidity. They don't want to fund additional commitments. But I think a lot of fund managers are seeing are are having challenges raising capital. It's it's kind of interesting, right? Because we're having this market volatility now, which is putting pressure on fundraising. But COVID also put pressure on fundraising, so you have kind of a double whammy on the fundraising side. Um, and in between that, definitely in certain asset classes, there's been limited, there were limited realizations, you know, during around COVID, not everybody, but, you know, I'm not talking industrial or multifamily, I'm talking about other asset classes, which actually have strong fundamentals or tailwinds now, but their funds have had challenges um, with realizations and they're out there raising fund five, fund six, and all of a sudden, you know, they they're, they have, maybe have a concentrated LP base, 10 LPs that just have too much exposure to this manager. They're not necessarily looking to dispose of their fund positions, but they are looking for kind of interim liquidity in the relationship to commit to new funds. You just minimize, you know, they want to continue the relationship because we all know from an LP's perspective, a lot of times once you have a relationship and the manager is strong, you want to continue it because you've invested time in that relationship, but you just can't be so exposed. So I think there's this is an interesting moment in time where uh, GPs that, you know, have this situation should look to the secondary market for a tender process uh, where, you know, the investors who want liquidity can get, you know, partial liquidities, like sell half their position. The GPs keep the investor relationship. They probably pick up, you know, a relationship with one of the guys on this call, uh, which is a good long-term relationship and kind of it's a win-win for everybody. I think there's definitely been some hesitancy to even approach that concept amongst GPs because they don't want to put any risk around their best relationships, which is understandable. Um, and the LPs may not, you know, sort of sort of think outside the box and say, oh, that's a great solution for me. And then all of a sudden they're a selling LP of all their positions in one fund manager because that's all they can kind of do. And then, you know, kind of stick with the other ones because there's no tender processes being run. So I think that's an interesting place where you can kind of combine the transparency 
um, and the diligence that you can receive through a GP-led process with the structure of actually providing liquidity LPs. Yeah, and I, so going back to the idea of LP secondaries taking off a little bit more uh, in 24, I think one of the other important um, points that we're looking for in 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 sort of the inflection is is a resumption in write-ups and values, right? Um, as Jeff alluded to right now, one of the biggest challenges is that huge uh, bid-ask spread, uh, especially with managers carrying assets at art artificially inflated marks, or at least that's the perception uh, currently today. And I think, you know, barring any other catalyst that that moves marks downward um, broadly across real estate funds, I think, you know, one of the one of the next turning points will really be a resumption in um, in transaction volume and hopefully higher valuations. You know, and where we are starting to see that uh, play out a little bit is at least in the industrial sector. Um, it, it sort of feels like we've um, we've reached a bit of a trough and asset values are starting to rebound out. Um, and so I think opportunities in industrial could be really interesting in the next year or two. Um, and, you know, TBD on residential, obviously, obviously there are some uh, headwinds with, uh, you know, the oncoming glut of uh, new supply and how that ultimately kind of works its way through the system. But, um, you know, there, there certainly could be some uh, interesting opportunities, broadly speaking, in the residential sector with some rebounds in pricing. And I think, you know, once that occurs, we'll start to see um, hopefully that bid ask spread start to attenuate in the uh, LP secondary space. Anybody want to talk a little bit about the other asset classes? Well, I think, um, you know, I'll, I'll take the tough one. Thank you. For everybody's like benefit. Like Bueller, Bueller, who <laughs> is? Yeah, I office is tough, and it would be I, I I think it would take quite a leap of faith to do something other than what Sam and Jeff described in their deal, which is you know one office asset or small amount of office exposure within a broad portfolio, you know to do say uh, you know a, 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 an office fund tender offer or recap would be very tough. There's a lot of demand uh, for, you know, that 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 type of capital solution right now. Uh, but it, it's just it's just hard, especially with CBD office in coastal markets, to peg a value to the assets. Right. Um, we're 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 still, I, I think, um, on our way down in terms of values there, and haven't hit the trough yet. And it would it would be difficult for us to have conviction in that type of deal. Even though, again, uh, you know, investors, sponsors are clamoring for that capital. Um, in contrast, retail is is perhaps past it, its trough, uh, especially for certain, um, you know, product type within retail. And um, you know, whereas that would have been less investable uh, pre-COVID, in the early years of COVID, I think that's more investable today, especially if it's convenience-oriented. Uh, grocery anchored, you know, the, 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 the areas of retail that are performing best. Um, and then the alternative sectors. Um, these are areas that uh, are, are seeing more investment demand across the board, uh, including in the secondary market. Uh, we're certainly interested in the, you know, demographically driven alternative sectors as well. Uh, we've been a very active data center investor 
for, for years now. And um, just, just as we see in other asset classes, um, data center sponsors are eager to, to raise capital whichever way they can, including through recaps, if that's the, the best solution. Um, and there are a number of situations where, um, you know, data center developments, especially uh, hyperscale um, data centers in particular, those are those are long burn opportunities. Uh, if you start with, um, you know, raw raw land, even entitled land, it can take in certain markets quite some time to, um, you know, get everything done, uh, pre dev work, entitlements, obtaining power. Um, you know, it's 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 a it's a multi year process, and that multi year process lends itself well to recaps, um, and that's just one of the potential ways to do data centers, but. Um, you know, data centers, other alternative sectors that um, are benefiting from demographic trends were quite keen. Yeah. And I need to ask, since you're nice enough to answer it, what about hospitality? Well, I I think we 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 just have had historically a cautious view on hospitality within our team. Um, it's a very cyclical sector. And um, you know the uh, the window of opportunity to do the best hospitality deals we think has come and gone um, very very quickly. Um, so you know, is it something that we would spend a lot of time on today? No. Um, you know, will there will there be good hospitality deals, including in the secondary market? Yes, um, but. You know, I, I I don't think that opportunity is big enough for us to spend a lot of time. Thank you. I, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to add. You know, one sector that I think is particularly interesting, um, probably in the GP led side, is senior housing. Senior housing, great uh, demographic tailwinds uh, behind it. Big challenge on operating margins in that business, um, and COVID just just really limited realizations. And lease up, um, so it's it's a kind of a business in transition, um, and, and I think we're excited about potential opportunities in that space. We also like student housing. I, I would imagine others on this call feel the same way, but there's definitely some challenge um, outside of just office. You know, as much as we like uh, grocery anchored shopping centers, necessity based retail, urban retails like feels like the same issue with office in terms of, you know, how far is it going to fall? It's just so it's highly correlated to, to office usage. We're not sure where the bottom is there. Um, so that that's been challenging. And I think the other uh, space that during COVID had that massive bump, which was life sciences is also challenging. There's just, there's just concerns about supply that, you know, it, you know, it was so correlated to, Hey, we're going to build life science office instead of office because no one wants office anymore. So you get a lot of capital flooding into that space, and then you just had demand uh, somewhat, you know, drop because of venture funding has has dropped. So those are kind of two smaller, um, you know, spaces where money is flown. But you know, I think as we look at recap opportunities, it's more challenged to get comfortable on on supply dynamics and and demand dynamics. Uh, especially in life sciences, and hope to find something that works in uh, in, in uh, seniors housing here in the U.S. We've done a lot of seniors housing outside the U.S. in a recap format, uh, but we actually haven't done a ton in seniors housing here in the U.S. Yeah, I'm seeing that life science 
actually happening in my town here. Yeah, it was, it was booming, and then yeah, now it's kind of just slowing down. Uh, yeah. People are getting out, getting out of deals. Um, now let's talk about one of my favorite uh, words or phrases in real estate: the zombie fund. Can you guys tell us about zombie funds and how they how they uh, are part of this universe or this uh, this world of secondaries? Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the term zombie fund uh, came about around around the time of the GFC. And prior to the global financial crisis, a lot of closed-end funds had really quite limited LP controls. Um, and what was really impactful was the ability to either remove a manager who was no longer continuing to perform on behalf of the uh, LPs, or, um, or you know, have a real well-defined exit point in the future for when uh, when the fund has to provide liquidity for investors. And I think importantly, what's often tied, uh, oftentimes now tied to that sort of cliff uh, for a closed-end fund is also when the fees turn off. And uh, at a certain point following the GFC. Um, there's started to percolate more and more of these funds that were managed by groups that were really no longer viable uh, as a business, continuing to go and raise additional new capital uh, to deploy into new assets. And they were sitting on a base of existing properties that they could continue to manage, uh, keep people on payroll, um, and, and sort of, you know, hopefully live to find another day. Now, the challenge with that is, you know, the existing LPs are sort of trapped, right? And so that's where the idea of a zombie fund comes about is you're just sort of, you're sort of dead, but you're just continuing to lumber along. And the, uh, you know, the interesting part about that is it, it's challenging, I think, to provide liquidity in a situation like that for the existing LPs, because without really clarity in terms of how the business plan or how the fund is ultimately going to get executed upon and wound down, there's really no point in trying to recapitalize out those existing investors. So, you know, you know, there have been several uh, options that have been thrown on the, uh, the table to handle those types of situations. We've looked at tender offers. We've passed on those. We've looked at buying LP secondary positions. We've passed on those. Um, and, you know, and unless there's some sort of GP-led recapitalization event where you can actually get in there, restrike the terms, and have some teeth into into how, uh, you know, the business is prosecuted. There's really no point in, in really trying to uh, spend any time with these zombie funds. Yeah, I think it's I think it's harder harder now. I mean, um, just given where capital markets are and challenges on on actually exiting these deals, where you're talking about before was if you look at a quote unquote zombie fund, you know, you're you're talking about Okay, the it yeah, you, know, you do need to come in and recap out and kind of take control with the manager of these assets and come up with a, a plan to actually dispose of them and, and achieve business plan. Now you now if there's a zombie fund and there's assets that are languishing in that zombie fund, and you have all this uncertainty in the capital markets. One, it means that those assets have been held for a long time. Um, and and two, you know, you, you're taking that risk even on a recap of how you're going to exit this. And um, if this is really a zombie fund, you know, call it from pre because I've still seen stuff that comes across our desk of pre GFC funds. It's there's a there's a bigger issue here usually in the assets that are left in those 
and those funds, and they're not going to be easily dealt with in a volatile market, right? Those are maybe you can deal with them in, in sort of an up market and just, you know, just sell something because there's so much demand for that, that asset type. But it's a challenging, it's an even more challenging environment today. I think that those funds are are really tough investments, as as Sam Sam said. It's the, the good news is a lot of those pre-GFC funds um, that so that that in some cases are zombie funds, in other cases, you know, the manager is actually quite healthy, has moved on to other fundraises, and and there's something right. specific going on with the remaining assets. The, the good news is that a lot of those have, I think, um, you know, gone away, some some way or another. You know, whether it, it's because the final assets were were actually sold, or because of um, you know, the dead capital markets, um, they were they were given back to the banks, um, whatever the case might be. But I do suspect we'll see more of these moving forward, especially smaller U.S. office-focused funds, right? Um, capital markets is highly out of favor. Um, it's hard to retain for the for the sponsors to retain the the teams that put these portfolios together. Um, but you know the the options to do something are quite constrained. Um, can't sell these assets today. Uh, except at fire sale prices, right? And certainly, uh, investors like us are very reluctant to put additional capital in. So, what do you what do you do? I think time time will tell. Um, perhaps the additional options will open up, and you know it will be possible for us to do something with these funds. But uh, it's possible as well; they'll just linger for years and years. Yeah, in today's market, right? That's not where you're spending the time. There's so many other better interesting opportunities for you but on the private equity side it, it is different there are folks who actually specialize in buying tell and fund to fund positions or tell and positions real estate secondary market just is not developed and deep enough for any of us to be spending our time and resources on that so yeah if if uh, hopefully as the so real estate secondary market develops there could be a solution at a certain point, but I don't think it's it's not it's not especially in this type of buying opportunity. I don't think anyone's willing to spend the time or the resources or the capital uh, to uh, chase down uh, deals like that. And and what do you think the impact of artificial intelligence on all of this is going to be, if any? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to jump in here. Um, as a firm, it's uh, it's something that we're spending quite a bit of time uh, evaluating and trying to identify different parts of our businesses where we can gain efficiencies from implementing AI. And I think a lot of operational, especially task-oriented, um, you know, um, functions will benefit from the use of AI and natural language processing and other you know big data trends. When it comes to real estate secondaries and real estate underwriting in general, I think there will certainly be use, use cases and we're starting to see some of them. But one of the biggest challenges in real estate is the lack of available big data sets. Um, so if you want to try to back into valuations or forecasts on rent growth and things like that, there aren't a lot of you know useful data sets to point to outside of, you know, beyond the sort of traditional data sets that people have in these long time series of, you know, data that's tracked by the St. Louis Fed. But 
eventually I think somebody will crack it, right? And there, there are folks, there are data scientists out there that are trying to come up with different um, different variables to try to uh, identify some sort of correlation between real estate valuations that might not track traditional variables. But, you know, you also run the risk of p-hacking and other things like that that might just, you know, you know, just generates various correlation and, you know, and once it gets tested out in the real world, it might not actually play out. So that's a long-winded way of saying like, who knows, right? Like we're at, we're at the very beginnings of this AI explosion and this AI um, revolution. But I think eventually, um, you know, if, if you're not working at it to trying to figure out other ways to incorporate this in your business, you'll just ultimately get left behind, but it, it's still very early days. Yeah, we have BGL a, uh, has a oh go ahead. Go ahead David. B, BGL go ahead. has an in-house data science team, and like the other investment teams at BGO, we leverage their predictive models to help in our underwriting. But uh, at the end of the day, it's probably easier to see with the GP lens. But but even in the traditional secondaries, it's very much a relationship-based business, and it, it's hard to see how much we can leverage AI in our work, though, uh, you know, perhaps one day we'll all be replaced by, by an algorithm. <laughs> um, you know, it, it just, um, as I said before, with, with traditional secondaries, it's, it's not very liquid. There aren't flow names. So it's not an area that lends itself well to, to AI. Um, doesn't directly answer your question, but um, AI is one of the reasons why we like data centers. Um, it's, it's benefiting that area of the real estate market, uh, and not to suggest that, you know, we're all in on data centers or anything like that, but, um, we have to be mindful of how trends in technology impact the demand for real estate. Uh, certainly, you know, data centers and, and AI are highly connected, but in previous years, right, um, demand from tech companies for creative office, demand from, um, uh, pharmaceutical startups for life science office. Um, we, we always have to be mindful of these trends and how they will impact the, the, the demand for and use of assets. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm in the Bay area. I see all my office buildings here are empty because of the volatility of the, of the, of the technology employment market, basically. So, um, go ahead, Jeff. No, I just meant, uh, I think, I mean, everyone covered it very well, but like who really has, who could create a moat by using AI, right? And I don't think the business in itself and what it is that we're trying to do, the AI doesn't really, the amount of capital and resources that you have to spend to create that, I, I, don't, I just don't think you create a moat for your business uh, with generative AI where it is today. So I just don't see it as a viable investment now, um, you know, as I think, at a certain point, um, that probably changes, but not with what we see right now. We have we have some clients that are investing in, in data analytics and hiring us as search professionals to try to help them build out those teams. So it's, we're just curious. I don't know if they have an answer either, uh, but they're definitely answering, the, asking the question and trying to help find someone to help come up with answers. Right? They say it's uh, it's it's top of mind on a lot of a lot of different shops out there. Um, with that. We're going to get to, we usually have the hot seat in our in our podcast, but we're going to have a little Q&A from the audience. All right. So question number one, which, which you know, it, it goes into the last uh, answer and question Q&A is from John Olenek. 
John, is his question is, is the secondary market an open marketplace or broker slash advisor relationship driven and networked or direct through institutional fund manager to fund manager, GP to LP? In other words, how do these transactions typically surface and get shopped? David, I think you said it's more mainly relationship-based. I'd love to hear your folks out there. It, how you? It, it, it is mainly relationship-based, I think, though there are brokers who specialize in, in secondaries, both traditional secondaries as well as, as the GP-led. Um, some do both. Some focus really more on the GP-led, um, and they play a very important role in the market. Uh, many institutional investors will not sell if there is not a competitive process, right? Now, again, with, with 10 total buyers, active in real estate secondaries, how competitive can it actually be? Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why we like being a, a real estate secondary buyer so much. But, but needless to say, they, they do play an important, important role. Anyone else? Yeah, I, I would echo David's point. Um, it, it, it is uh, on, on both sides uh, between LP and GP-led secondaries. Uh, it's becoming increasingly intermediated. Um, there are still, you know, quote unquote, off-market opportunities that arise uh, in certain cases. Um, and usually those happen just through relationships with other LPs. And um, for a variety of reasons, an LP might not want to use an intermediary, right? They might not want to know that they're out actively seeking liquidity in the market. And that's a that's a time where, you know, if you're a trusted relationship of theirs, you can, you can, you know, help facilitate a transaction. All right. So all right. Which I think is gonna this is gonna be the last question, Lisa, do you see it or do you want me to ask it? Sure. Um so it's from Cahil Clements and he asked, what liquidity requirements do you typically typically negotiate slash underwrite? Oh, you mean uh, in the, I, I guess maybe addressing the LP side of of a transaction? Um, I mean, for, or, or maybe in the GP context, I, I'd say there really isn't any in, any in the LP side beyond, you know, sort of whatever the, the fund provisions provide. Uh, on a GP side, from a liquidity perspective, I mean, we like to focus on opportunities. If we're going to come in and recap a portfolio of, of assets or, or buy out investors, having major decision rights, ability to sell, ability to enforce refinancings, um, so sort of traditional allocator control rights uh, with a portfolio. Um, I mean, I think all of us would, would like that. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen. Every deal is unique. Um, so, you know, it, it, they're all kind of uh, customized. So when you're talking about GP-led secondaries, they're customized liquidity solutions. So what's the future liquidity looks like? It's always customized to the opportunity set. All right. Yeah. I, I was going to say the only other thing to keep in mind um, is that when you're, when you are buying in an LP secondary, you can always turn around and sell your own interest if you need to at a certain point in time. And, uh, you know, occasionally that does happen with some of these tail end, uh, tail end funds. Um, but yeah, Alex is right. A, a big part of, you know, the beauty of, of, of putting together a GP led transaction is, is being able to have those types of controls in place to ensure that, uh, at a date certain you can, you can get liquidity for your underlying capital. Well, folks, 
There's no more. They don't have any closing remarks. Thanks for, uh, <laughs> thanks for asking us and putting this, uh, this together. Yeah. Oh, wait, one more question under, under the wire. One more question. You guys ready? Can you hang on for a second? All right. This is from, uh, I don't know if I can pronounce this correctly. Excuse me. Uh, Deji Odesang, how do you underwrite cap rates if there are different vintages in a portfolio? You are starting to see bigger spread across A and B. Are you starting to see a bigger spread across A and B assets? Does it, you mean by underlying assets? Uh, uh, that, that's the assumption is yeah. that if it's an underlying asset, I mean, when, you know, from an LP secondary perspective, I mean, we, you know, you're underwriting asset by asset. So, you know, whatever the characteristic of the underlying assets, I mean, you are, you know, comping into the marketplace and you're obviously using your best judgment. So from a vintage perspective, um, if that's the question in terms of if you're looking at a multi and you have 84 vintage versus a 2018 vintage, I mean, that's just comping into the marketplace, I would say. So there's no really no differentiation from a traditional, you know, underlying property underwriting versus a LP secondary underwriting. Yeah, that's that's right. right. And and something that people might not necessarily appreciate, um, though not everybody does this. I would suspect everybody on this call is doing the sum of the parts valuation approach that Jeff describes and gets very granular from a real estate perspective. So you're not looking at a fund as just a um, homogenous portfolio um, from a valuation perspective. You're actually drilling down into the individual assets and and developing a view on each one. It sounds complicated. It's labor intensive. And <laughs> that's part of the reason why I suspect we won't be replaced by an algorithm anytime soon. <laughs> maybe by a 23 year old who's uh, coming out of investment banking. Missed that part of it, hopefully, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, David, Jeff, Sam, and Alex, thank you so much for coming on the webinar. That was great. Uh, you guys are great sports and appreciate you sharing your experience here with us. This was fantastic. All right. Well, Jackson Lucas, Lisa Flicker, and Chris Papa, thank you all for joining us. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you.